0: Alright, well let's just jump right into this. This is a multi-part lecture series I will be giving on the topic of hypercalcemia. Let me start this all off by first stating a few basic facts about calcium. The large majority of calcium ions in the body reside in the bones, but that should not discount the importance of calcium in so many cellular functions like nerve conduction and muscle contraction. But before we can store or use calcium, we have to obtain it. Calcium is absorbed in the intestines, and that ability to absorb calcium declines with age. Vitamin D helps regulate intestinal calcium transport efficiency, but it is not the only factor. Many substances can increase or decrease calcium absorption. For example, let's look at a very common medication we use frequently, glucocorticoids are one of several drugs that decrease calcium absorption. And we all know that glucocorticoids, such as prednisone, can cause osteoporosis. And that decreased absorption of calcium is just one of the mechanisms that contributes to osteoporosis from glucocorticoids. To understand hypercalcemia, we must also know something about calcium excretion. Calcium excretion is mostly regulated through the kidneys. For example... Corticosteroids like prednisone increase urinary calcium loss via the kidneys, further contributing to osteoporosis. However, the kidneys don't just excrete calcium. They are a crucial area where calcium is reabsorbed. And the presence of parathyroid hormone enhances tubular reabsorption of calcium in the kidneys. Vitamin D also enhances reabsorption of calcium. Therefore. High levels of vitamin D and or parathyroid hormone can be mechanisms of hypercalcemia. So summing it up in an oversimplified manner, calcium enters through the intestines, is stored in the bones, and leaves through the kidneys. And there are regulators of those processes that influence our calcium levels. Two of the biggest regulators are vitamin D and parathyroid hormone hormone. But by no means are they the only players in this story. Now with those basics in mind, let's dive deeper into this topic by talking about a patient scenario. So let's say a patient you are seeing says she is having fatigue and abdominal pain. And your first thought is that you can't stand when there are vague symptoms of fatigue or non-focal abdominal pain because the diagnosis can often be elusive. After the exam, you remain unsure what is causing her symptoms So you send some labs and you are alarmed to find the serum calcium level is 12.5. You obviously want to find the etiology of the hypercalcemia. Your first clue as to the most likely etiology is actually where you are seeing that patient. If you are in an inpatient setting, the most common cause of hypercalcemia is malignancy. However, if you are in an outpatient setting, the most common cause is hyperparathyroidism. But obviously, no matter what the setting, a lot more has to go into the evaluation. Either way, I think the very first place to start is to look at the medication list and also ask in detail about supplements. If you were to find the patient is taking a thiazide diuretic with calcium supplements and vitamin D Hold all of them at least just for the moment. Now let's take a moment to discuss thiazide diuretics. So is it a bad side effect that thiazide diuretics cause reabsorption of calcium in the kidneys? Not necessarily. It can be bad, and at other times it is a good thing. A 1995 meta-analysis indicated that there may be a 20% reduction in fracture risk among thiazide users. The thought is they increase bone mineralization and density. Let's also consider the patients with elevated calcium levels in their urine, a condition known as hypercalciuria. These patients can have normal serum calcium levels, but they get calcium stones. Among the measures that can be taken to prevent new stones is taking a diuretic like hydrochlorothiazide or chlorothalidone. Thiazides may drop calcium excretion by 50% by increasing calcium reabsorption. Please note that loop diuretics, like furosemide, have the opposite effect. They increase calcium excretion, which is why we often give Lasix as one part of a treatment regimen in severe hypercalcemia. Loop diuretics alone are not adequate treatment, but I will address that later. Anyway... Getting back to our patient with a calcium level of 12.5, even if she is on a thiazide diuretic, there probably is an additional etiology at play. But while working up that etiology, hold the thiazide diuretic, and possibly the calcium level will fall a bit if she is lucky. Alright, the next obvious thing to address is calcium supplementation. Not all calcium products are the same, and calcium carbonate will be more prone to cause hypercalcemia because of the metabolic alkalosis effect of the carbonate. The alkalosis triggers increased reabsorption of calcium in the distal tubule of the kidney. We probably see less of the huge calcium carbonate ingestions of products like Tums since there are now the proton pump inhibitors and H2 blockers for dyspepsia and ulcers, but I think nearly every doctor in practice for more than a decade is going to see cases of milk-alkali syndrome. When certain folks ingest huge amounts of calcium carbonate or huge amounts of milk, that results in hypercalcemia, and the term used is milk-alkali syndrome. Renal failure can also occur in milk-alkali syndrome, Therefore, patients using calcium carbonate for stomach conditions or for osteoporosis shouldn't exceed recommended dosages since more is not always better. Also, particularly watch out for excessive use of calcium supplements in pregnancy. If a woman has hyperemesis gravidarum, she might take a lot of Tums for symptom relief And the absorption of calcium in the digestive tract increases during pregnancy. All right, let me address vitamin D. Vitamin D supplements are another consideration in a hypercalcemic patient. I am a fan of taking some vitamin D for multiple reasons, but let's be real. It has gained a cult-like following as the cure-all to the point where some people's feelings are hurt if a friend tells them they don't take vitamin D. I believe there are scenarios where anything beneficial can cause a problem. Even laughter. People say laughter is the best medicine, which it may be for many things, but it is not great for those with diarrhea or incontinence. Likewise, vitamin D in high dosages has its issues vitamin D increases the absorption of calcium and phosphate in the gut. Those taking megadoses of vitamin D, in which the levels get really high, such as a vitamin D level over 150, are at risk for vitamin D intoxication. That can result in hypercalcemia. Okay, here's an interesting question. What if you have hypercalcemia from primary hyperparathyroidism, yet also have a vitamin D deficiency. We should probably still prescribe vitamin D. Yes, there is a risk of worsening hypercalcemia, but we are usually pretty good at treating elevated calcium levels. Vitamin D deficiency occurs frequently in patients with primary hyperparathyroidism. The current guidelines do recommend measurement of serum levels of 25-hydroxyvitamin D in all patients with primary hyperparathyroidism and repletion if the levels are low. It turns out that in primary hyperparathyroidism, the disease seems to be more severe in those with concomitant vitamin D deficiency. There is limited data suggesting that vitamin D treatment is generally safe in subjects with mild primary hyperparathyroidism and coexisting vitamin D deficiency. The other issue is that coexisting vitamin D deficiency may cause the serum calcium level to drop into the normal range, which can lead to diagnostic uncertainty. Another major reason to replace vitamin D is that some of these patients will be treated with surgery. Vitamin D deficient patients undergoing parathyroidectomy are at increased risk of postoperative hypocalcemia, from the hungry bone syndrome. So long-term holding of the vitamin D does not make sense. Now, don't get me wrong. If a patient has a calcium level of 14, I hold the vitamin D until I can get the calcium into a reasonable range and then test the patient to see if there is vitamin D deficiency or toxicity. Once the hypercalcemia is more reasonably controlled, if the patient has low vitamin D levels, I restart the vitamin D or add it if they were never on it. Okay, while well, addressing the vitamin D link to hypercalcemia, I should probably now mention sarcoidosis. Many of you experienced healthcare providers know that sarcoidosis patients are prone to hypercalcemia, but do you know why that happens? A major reason is that in sarcoidosis, the macrophages in the lungs and lymph nodes produce calcitriol. Calcitriol is the active hormone form of vitamin D that promotes the absorption of calcium and phosphate in the intestines and also decreases calcium excretion by the kidneys. There are also patients with sarcoidosis who develop a parathyroid hormone-related protein, so it can be multifactorial in sarcoidosis. Therefore, looking at the whole picture, as you can see, The diagnosis of hypercalcemia really does rely on good history taking. If you don't ask about medications and supplements or disease processes like sarcoidosis or, as I will discuss, symptoms of malignancy, you can easily miss an important contributing factor. So while our minds like to go straight to either hyperparathyroidism or malignancy, and yes, they do together account for about 90% of the cases of hypercalcemia, a good clinician must also recognize the other etiologies that I just discussed. Of course, there may be more than one thing going on. One can have hyperparathyroidism or malignancy, but also be taking a thiazide diuretic or calcium, and those things can be exacerbating the issue. I do want to briefly mention a rare disorder called familial hypocalciuric hypercalcemia. That occurs from a genetic mutation of the calcium-sensing receptor that is expressed in multiple tissues, including the parathyroid glands. With that mutation, the variations in the serum calcium concentrations are not sensed, and that results in inappropriate release of parathyroid hormone causing hypercalcemia. It is important to know about this condition because it does not require parathyroidectomy as surgery will not cure it. Let me briefly acknowledge lithium as an etiology of hypercalcemia. As I discussed in my previous lecture dedicated to lithium toxicity and side effects, it can cause hypercalcemia and hyperparathyroidism. Lithium can change the thermostat On the calcium sensing receptor, resulting in mild hypercalcemia and elevated parathyroid levels that imitates primary hyperparathyroidism. Also, an important thing that hospitalists, as well as providers in other settings such as nursing homes, must remember is that immobilization and volume depletion can contribute to worsening hypercalcemia. Let me take a few moments now to address malignancy. The first thing to know about malignancy-associated hypercalcemia is that from a prognostic standpoint, it is associated with a worse 30-day survival. The second thing to note is that additional contributing factors beyond the malignancy might be making the problem worse, meaning patients with cancer can be very fatigued with immobilization contributing to hypercalcemia, or nausea, making them volume depleted. The third thing to note about malignant hypercalcemia is that there can be various etiologies. So there can be local osteolytic hypercalcemia, which is direct skeletal involvement from something like breast cancer metastasized to the bones, hematologic malignancies like multiple myeloma, or lymphoma can cause direct skeletal involvement. However, the majority of malignancy-associated hypercalcemia cases are not from direct local osteolytic hypercalcemia. Much more common is humoral hypercalcemia of malignancy. And that is due to a disagreeable substance called parathyroid hormone-related protein, which can be secreted by tumors. Lots of cancers can secrete this protein, and the list is not limited to carcinomas of the breast, kidney, ovary, and bladder. Squamous carcinomas of the head, neck, esophagus, lung, cervix, and skin are also big offenders. Therefore, it is important to know that the majority of your patients with hypercalcemia of malignancy do not have skeletal metastasis. However, in most cases, in those that develop hypercalcemia from malignancy, there is significant tumor burden, even if it has not spread to the bones. A special mention about lymphomas. Lymphomas can be weird on so many levels. In fact, one of my general rules in medicine is that when a patient is clearly having some really strange symptoms, you can't figure out at least think about lymphoma as an etiology. Anyway, specifically addressing hypercalcemia, lymphomas can have multiple potential causes, and those include direct skeletal involvement, but some lymphomas do bizarre stuff, like overproduce vitamin D. Now note that we probably have not discovered all the humoral mediators of malignant hypercalcemia, but either way, parathyroid hormone-related protein seems to be the biggest offender. All right, so I'll end there, and hypercalcemia is obviously a huge topic, so I will be back with the next lecture further addressing this issue. This is Dr. Gil Peratt, and I will see you on the next round.